0: But it's something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon.
1: This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. Available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Between now and 2017, one quarter of housing cooperatives in B.C. will lose rent geared to income subsidies for low-income members as federal housing agreements end. On the program, we'll be discussing this situation and how this affects the affordable housing landscape in Vancouver, across B.C., and Canada. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. the Soul Jazz Orchestra here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's uh, CJSF.ca. And you may also be listening as a podcast uh, from the cityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and welcome to the program. Between now and 2017, one quarter of housing cooperatives in BC will lose rent geared to income subsidies For low-income members, as federal housing agreements end, over 1,500 households will face a crisis as their homes become unaffordable. And by 2020, this number will climb to 3,000 households. On the program, I'm discussing this situation with uh, Tom Armstrong, and he is Executive Director of the Cooperative Housing Federation of B.C. For those that may be unfamiliar with housing cooperatives, uh, can you just give us a brief uh, summary of of what people should know uh, about housing cooperatives?
2: Yes, housing cooperatives uh, have been part of the Canadian housing landscape since the early 1970s. Uh, Most of the housing co-ops in in Canada uh, are non-profit housing co-ops, which means they they offer uh, affordable mixed income housing, usually uh, based on on government funding of one sort uh, or another. Uh, They are independent legal associations owned by their members, and the residents of the housing uh, are the members of the cooperative association.
1: Great. And can you give us a bit of a history in BC and maybe more broadly in Canada um, of housing cooperatives and how they um, came to be part of uh, the housing landscape in in BC and in Canada?
2: Sure. The the, back in the um, well, since the really since the end of the Second World War. Uh, the rental housing market in Canada and in North America, for that matter, uh, hasn't really worked to provide uh, affordable housing for people uh, other than uh, uh, very high income earners. And there was a crisis in the 1960s in, in, in the, the supply and the affordability of, of rental housing. The government decided to do something about it by sponsoring um, demonstration programs. And uh, there were a few housing co ops uh, built uh, with uh, government assistance. Uh, in the early 70s, and that resulted in the first uh, fully funded federal co-op housing program in 1973. And over a series of programs uh, between 1973 and 1992, uh, more than 2,000 housing cooperatives uh, housing more than 92,000 households uh, were built uh, in Canada. And today, uh, there are um, about 260 Non-profit housing co-ops and uh, 14,500 co-op homes uh, here in, in British Columbia, and they've been providing safe, secure, affordable, member-controlled, uh, mixed-income communities uh, for uh, many, many years. And and they still um, still housing developments and communities being managed uh, and, and governed by the members who live there and uh, they've been providing um, housing for people who are traditionally underrepresented uh, in in the housing market in the, in the rental market uh, in particular and really you know the best way to um, describe housing co-ops i think is a 40 year success story in canada
1: mm-hmm. So we have a situation where federal subsidies for um, housing cooperatives that that subsidize um, uh, often lower income folks living in co-ops are expiring and will continue to expire over the next number of years. Can you uh, yeah. can you outline the current situation and and um, and the extent to which this is? Um, I would argue a, a crisis.
2: Yes, yeah, so almost all of the housing co-ops in BC were built and financed under federal co-op housing programs. They typically entered into an agreement with the federal government that had a term of 30 or 35 years. And that agreement obliged the co-op to maintain the buildings in in good repair and to offer accommodation to people of mixed income. And the government's obligation was to provide subsidy or rent assistance uh, to qualifying low-income members uh, to make their homes affordable. So in any given uh, co-op, Between 30 and 35% of the homes are occupied by people who rely on that rent assistance to make their housing affordable. Those agreements, of course, have uh, an end, and they've started now to expire. Uh, The peak of the expiry will be in 2017, but it will continue on beyond that. And by by 2020, uh, more than 3,000 households in B.C., who currently depend on federal rent assistance to make their homes affordable, will no longer receive that assistance. And that happens overnight as the agreements expire and exposes uh, those people to uh, literally to the risk of homelessness if they can't afford to live uh, in the co-op that they live in now.
1: Now, how are are different housing cooperatives um, anticipating to respond in different ways based on their own capacity, or is... Um, again, as you mentioned, these subsidies end. Um, what does this mean? Is there, is there an emergency plan in place uh, to prevent homelessness? Or, um, again, maybe you can speak more broadly and generally to what, to what uh, your response is.
2: Well, the, the co-ops that are most immediately affected are trying to find out ways to bridge the gap between the expiry of their government agreements and what they hope will be a new commitment by the provincial government to to pick up that slack it's it sometimes said that uh, co-ops ought to be expected to make up that difference on their own because after all when their agreements with the government expire their mortgages will be fully paid off and i think what that um, what that misses is that while the co-ops will have retired their first mortgage not fully many have had to take out second and third mortgages to deal with catastrophic building envelope failure during the period of leaky co-ops and leaky condos. Mm-hmm. But you know more broadly speaking, the buildings that those members occupy are now you know, 30 to 40 years old. And they, they have a um, you know, limited shelf life, and they require massive capital reinvestment to bring those homes up to a, a reasonable standard. So it will be a very rare co-op that won't have to uh, take out a very substantial loan. Uh, to reinvest in that capital asset, and that will mean a whole new level of debt service uh, for the members who are paying the break-even housing charge. And we don't think there simply won't be enough room uh, in the housing charge that can be collected from moderate-income members to provide additional uh, assistance to low-income members. So we think that's the government's role. It has been for 35 years, and we would now uh, be hoping that the provincial government will assume responsibility for that ongoing stream of subsidy.
1: I have to ask why, um, why I guess why assume or, or suggest the provincial government as opposed to the federal government um, to step in and, and fill that, um, that subsidy?
2: Well uh, that, that's a good question and, and, and the answer is that in the meantime, since since all of the uh, funding agreements were um, you know were initially signed to, to develop the co-ops uh, in the intervening years, responsibility for housing has shifted from the federal government to the provinces and territories. Uh, it's something that the provinces and territories have sought, you know, they sought for a long time uh, in their constitutional and fiscal discussions with the federal government. So now the the, the primary responsibility for housing is provincial. The federal government through uh, a series of agreements that uh, transfers funds uh, every year uh, to provincial treasuries uh, to assume that responsibility. And we think it's a natural fit. Uh, that the province uh, should now, as those co-ops come out of their federal housing agreements, given that shift in, in constitutional and fiscal responsibility, it's uh, it's a natural fit that the province should pick up the slack and continue those programs.
1: Can you talk specifically about uh, the You Hold the Key campaign?
2: <clears throat> yes, uh, You Hold the Key campaign is really uh, directed at both our members uh, and the government. Uh, and the point of the campaign is to say to our members, you hold the key to persuading the provincial government uh, to pick up uh, the slack now from once those federal agreements are, are, uh, have expired. And to say to the, the province, you hold the key to keeping uh, low-income members, uh, new Canadians, people with disabilities, uh, single parents, um, in their homes safely and securely uh, without having to risk uh, facing the most expensive housing market in the country, should they not be able to afford to live in their co-op any longer
1: great and and how can you talk about how the campaign has been received and and whether municipalities and uh, greater Vancouver um, or Metro Vancouver um, have they responded to the campaign and, and are they um, joining together in the call for the, the provincial government to, to step in?
2: You know they, they sure have and we've been so gratified with the response we've been getting. Um, not only from our own members, of course, since we have a direct interest in the success of the campaign, but uh, various municipal uh, councils have taken a real interest in, in what we 've been trying to uh, to get across and Cities like Burnaby and Vancouver have passed motions in support of of our campaign, and more recently, uh, the board of Metro Vancouver uh, passed a resolution urging the the province to step up and, and fill that gap. Urging the federal government in fact, to reinvest some of the savings it's it's uh, making from the expiry of the agreements in additional transfers to the province and urging every level of government to somehow combine their resources to avert this looming crisis and we 're so appreciative of, of the um, the efforts that the municipalities have made to try and get this message across to the province and and the federal government because you know they get it that um, you know, you're not homeless in in Canada or BC, you're homeless in in New Westminster and in Burnaby and in Vancouver. And they know that the problem uh, is coming uh, right home to them. And they want to help us do something about it. So we're we're very grateful for that support. We think it's going to have a big impact.
1: Would it be fair to say that the loss of these subsidies um, really jeopardizes the intent and the philosophy behind the cooperative uh, movement? And in terms of of having housing that's affordable and available to those who really need it, as opposed to just serving moderate income households?
2: It, it certainly jeopardizes the initial policy goals of the federally sponsored co op housing programs. I mean, there, there are lots of housing co ops uh, around the world uh, who serve um, a different demographic and, and a different uh, income band. But you know housing co-ops in Canada have always been uh, built on the basis of mixed income housing. Uh, we believe that that is the best way to create stable uh, diverse um, responsible communities where where people will really want to put down roots and raise families and 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 spend a long uh, time and that goal um, is jeopardized by the with you know by the by the ending of, of the federal uh, subsidies because Housing co-ops, uh, at the same time that they're sustainable and diverse communities, they're also housing businesses. They have to break even. Um, and the revenues they collect from housing charges or rents have to match their operating costs. And without that, um, that stream of subsidy to bridge the difference between what people can truly afford and the break-even rents uh, to operate that housing business, housing co-ops will be unable to serve the population they've traditionally served uh, over the last 40 years.
1: I have to ask, have you um, had um, productive or I guess any conversations with uh, the provincial government and uh, um, and even the federal government as well?
2: Well, the federal government to date has not really been willing to engage in in the conversation their their um, position essentially is we signed thirty five year agreements those agreements are coming to an end that's the end of our responsibility so that's why we are offering to work with provinces and with municipalities to try and persuade the federal government to leave at least some of the money it's saving with the expiry of those agreements um, on the table so the provinces can have the resources they need uh, to pick up the slack. And We have had um, very early uh, conversations with the province uh, through BC Housing about uh, how that might work. And I have to say I'm encouraged with uh, their response. They, they haven't said no, uh, but they haven't yet committed to uh, a program going forward. And that's really the next step in our campaign is to uh, to sit down with the province and just work out how we can make this right so that people don't have to live in fear of being evicted from the homes that they, uh, that they have called theirs for, in some cases, decades, and the communities that they've raised their children in.
1: And I guess I also have to ask, so what happens if the province does not step up um, to uh, to provide those subsidies and fill that, that gap?
2: Well, that, that's a, that's a, an outcome that I'm almost afraid to, to contemplate. Um, it will put co-op communities in, in, in such a difficult position because on the one hand, they will want to do whatever they can to help their, their neighbors who may not be able to afford the break-even rent, but on the other, they, they have a responsibility... To, sorry, they have a responsibility to maintain the housing that they own in, in good physical condition. And the the challenge that they will face is that it, it's impossible uh, financially to do both. Mm. Uh, and having to choose between maintaining the asset and helping to house low-income neighbors uh, is an awful uh, choice, an awful dilemma that I wouldn't want to see any co-op uh, faced with.
1: Is there a role for in all of this um, for... Um uh, credit unions and other partners um, that have probably largely been involved in um, in financing cooperatives for a long time but um, thinking Van city and other organizations as well
2: there, there there is uh but it's not in the provision of rent to income uh, subsidies for low income members right. but it's it's just as important we we have a um a partnership with uh, van city. Uh, to provide uh, financing on preferential terms for co-ops that need to reinvest in their asset. So co-ops will go through a process with us of, of developing an asset management plan. Uh, from that might arise an application for a loan uh, to make uh, repairs uh, to buildings that you know are now 30 to 35 years old. And City has really stepped up to the plate and said we're prepared to make those loans on, on, on fair conditions uh, to reduce the debt service costs as much as we can uh, within you know the mandate uh, that we have as a lender, uh, so those co-op communities can flourish over time. and And we very much value that partnership with with Van City and being able to have access to that capital as a nonprofit uh, co-op, uh, where you know the reception might be uh, a little frostier uh, in in other sections of the financial um, uh, or lending industry. Uh, is going to have a huge impact on the viability of co-ops over time.
1: How does this current situation affect prospects for establishing new uh, housing cooperatives?
2: Uh, it, it does make it difficult to to serve the, the traditional demographic of, of housing co-ops in, in Canada. We have we have some opportunities to develop uh, new housing co-ops. Outside of the traditional senior government funding uh, program model, but it does mean having to find additional sources of equity to reduce uh, initial capital costs, so that that service doesn't chew up too much of people's income. Uh, it does mean finding more efficient ways to build. Um, means finding land that that is affordable and and doesn't drive the cost of the development beyond uh, the level that people can can afford. So it. it it's not impossible to develop new co-ops these days, but it's very, very challenging, and, and it's, it's without some form of, of equity uh, from somewhere, whether it be a municipality in the form of grants and land, or whether it be uh, donations of capital from other sources, it's uh, going to be very, very difficult to serve the traditional mixed income demographic uh, that co-ops have enjoyed uh, for these many years.
1: How are other provinces uh, dealing with the situation?
2: You know, it's pretty much the same situation across the country. Uh, we've we've heard, although I haven't been able to confirm, that the government of Manitoba is considering stepping up and, and filling that gap. But you know, for the most part, um, a lot of provinces are playing a wait and see game. You know, let's see if the federal government really is uh, serious about ending its commitment to housing co-ops. And and you know, by the way, I I think the federal government is serious. Uh, they do not want a continuing role. So, you know, I think if we can establish um, a precedent here in B.C., it won't only just serve low-income co-op members here in our home province, but it will it will serve to help the efforts across the country to find a solution to what, you know, I can only describe as a looming crisis. Hmm.
1: Is there anything else, uh, Tom, that you want to leave listeners with?
2: I would on- only say that, that, you know, I think it... it Generally accepted that the co-op housing programs in Canada have been successful beyond anyone's uh, imagination. Uh, they've created vibrant, uh, diverse, mixed-income communities. Uh, people have um, lived in for more than one generation, uh, raised families, um, allowed people the opportunity to to uh, go to school, to find jobs, um, to build citizenship. Uh, it's Regarded as a success story not only by Canadian housing policy analysts but by uh, housing experts all around the world. And it would be a real shame if uh, the legacy of the kinds of communities that co ops have built under these programs uh, would be allowed to lapse as responsibility for funding uh, rent assistance shifts to the provinces. So I'm optimistic. Uh, I think it's. Housing co ops are too successful. They, they represent too uh, good an investment for government uh, seeking to help people find affordable housing uh, to pass up. And I think we'll be able to make something happen here in BC.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Everything. This is the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. I'm Andy Longhurst. We heard from Tom Armstrong, and he is executive director of the uh, Co-op, Cooperative Housing Federation of British Columbia, and he was talking about the current uh, crisis um, emerging around the expiry of federal uh, cooperative housing agreements um, that uh, provide and ensure that uh, low-income uh, residents and cooperative members um, are able to uh, afford uh, their, their units in uh, co-op housing across Vancouver, across British Columbia, and across Canada. So again, uh, if you missed any part of that uh, discussion, uh, you can certainly check that out, and it will be posted um, in a a couple days' time uh, from uh, thecityfm.org. We've got uh, a a brief discussion, um, but an important one, coming up in the second half of the show um, with Margot Young, and she is a professor of law at uh, the University of British Columbia, And she's going to be talking about uh, ways we frame housing and uh, talking about a language and a vocabulary of housing uh, that that thinks of it and and conceptualizes it as a right um, and thinking about housing justice. So in building off of our uh, discussion uh, with Tom Armstrong about uh, the expiry of these uh, important agreements, uh I think it's also important that we think about what housing means and uh, think about it in in a language that might uh challenge or uh contest um uh you know standard or traditional or dominant ways that we uh, think of housing. So we're going to go into that shortly. We've got a track though uh continuing our theme of home. Uh we've got a track um, Home uh, by Ostra off of the latest release, Olympia. Um, and before that, you heard from Starr. Home is everywhere. So this is the city, and it's an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. We're going to go to Ostra right now. Stay tuned. We've got more uh, coming your way. Thanks for tuning in. And as I mentioned, that was Ostra with the track Home. And uh, you're tuned into the city. And uh, importantly, I think it's when we talk about things like housing and uh, housing crisis and... Um, issues like homelessness, I think it's also important we talk about um, dominant ways that we think or, or ways that we get stuck in thinking about uh, um, the, the very basic necessity of housing. So in, uh, in that way, um, I think um, Margot Young, and we're going to hear from her in a moment, um, provides a particularly important way to reflect on, on housing, um, how we view it, whether we view it as a right or something that is about uh, justice. Um, or, or, uh, or something that we leave to the market. Um, and I think, as Tom uh, Armstrong pointed out, um, we, we have a crisis and we have uh, serious affordability issues and that the market has not provided affordable housing. Um, so I think it's an important opportunity to rethink um, and challenge um, and consider alternative conceptions. Margot Young is professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia and a co-principal investigator of the Housing Justice Project. And uh, In this uh, brief uh, clip from, uh, from her, we're going to hear uh, her discuss the right to housing and the concept of the right to the city, uh, a related um, way of thinking about the city and thinking about uh, how, how the city is structured, the things that uh, we access and depend on, um, and, and who is, um, in, in a very basic way, who has a right to the city. So this is uh, coming from uh, a talk, um, part of a panel discussion from the Women Transforming inaugural conference held on May 30th, 2013. And we're going to go to that uh, clip now. Again, this is Professor Margot Young.
3: The other concept I want to introduce, the second one, is the idea of framing and and Tiffany talked a bit about this in her presentation today, and I think it's really quite critical to approaching these problems to be self-conscious about how we're framing what's at issue. So, of course, framing is a popular device to capture the way in which we code or parse out problems, what our reference points are, what we make visible, what we leave invisible, what we question, what we assume, and and indeed the dominant frame now is one of neoliberalism and neoliberal forms of governance in which there's a focus on the responsible, uh, self-authoring individual, an idea of the marketization of all realms of life understanding this sort of uh, self-choosing, self-willing, self-creating individual to be the metric of uh, social organization and the way in which neoliberal forms of government deflect attention from central government state remedies to privatized uh, community groups or other forms of local, really in some ways, um, uh, underfunded and de-authorized forms of uh, of community local responsibility, that sort of P3 development, for example, that kind of neoliberal localization. And opposing this, I would argue the justice framework and a feminist justice framework is the appropriate one. And importantly, a piece of this, I think, for making traction in the area of women's rights to adequate housing is to focus on the notion of rights and what that brings into the conversation. Not a great fan of the sort of abstract idea of rights. It comes out of a very individualistic classical liberal tradition, but it has some important features when you bring it into a social justice context that I think are critical. It uh, encodes the notion of government responsibility that it's not a private resolution of issues, but we look to the state to resolve. The idea of accountability and transparency, of accountability mechanisms, of ways of cleaning and demanding and accounting for failures in rights provision. It's an idea of entitlement and not charity. So the assumption that this will be provided as opposed to it remaining optional or market. Uh, Driven And then also, importantly, there's this idea of a kind of substantive realization that I would say the feminist context brings to the idea of rights. And so the feminist concept, of course, uh, enforces the idea of recognition that we're all marked by social divisions, that social divisions uh, deliver or parcel out different packages of privilege and disadvantage or marginalization, inclusion and exclusion and that gender is an important dynamic but it's also an important um, value that intersects with other social divisions as well. And the idea of respect for difference and indeed valuing difference, I think, is an important piece of that picture. That brings me to the last piece in my remaining three minutes, um, (laughs) which is just to talk about the importance of the focus or scale of analysis. And we already get this because we're here at a conference about cities. But I just wanted to note the, the sort of, Um, importance of the fact that cities are increasingly getting a kind of resurgence importance in social judgment justice struggles. So they're key geographical sites, in the word of one theorist. They're key sites of the delivery and the playing out of these new modes of neoliberal governance, and they're also key sites for understanding resistance against and the complexities and tensions of large cities also raise opportunities for ways to see beyond current forms of uh, neoliberal Ordering, And I I just mentioned a really interesting study by a woman called Leslie Stern, who's a Toronto academic. She looks at the sale and the marketing of condominiums in Toronto and talks about how the development industry has a role in the neoliberal construction of women's own understandings of their citizenship in the city and how women are coming to see themselves as urban citizens through their consumption, their home ownership, and how urban space construction is feeding into what is really not a very feminist or liberatory pattern of understanding female women's agenda, uh, agency. So cities are really a strategic terrain and it's incredibly important to be having the kinds of conversations that we're having now. And there's a large discussion in feminist citizenship literature about really the importance of focusing on cities. As one male theorist says, it's, it's the point at which the rubber of the personal hits the ground of the societal, the intersection of everyday life with the socially created systemic world around us. So it, again, just to say um, that they're a key piece of this this social justice conversation, and in particular, to tie it back into my first point in my last minute about um, the the notion of rights, is an important recognition in this conversation about how rights have a spatial configuration. And so I'm a constitutional not a lawyer but a academic, legal academic. And one of the things I'm working on is how rights in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms actually for disempowered groups really have impact and, and bear on how we organize space in our cities. So the spatialization of rights is also another important piece of this conversation and that spatialization takes place in the urban environment. Which brings me to my last point, which I think pulls all these three notions of invisibility of uh, framing and um, of the local into a kind of focus is this conversation that's bubbling around for some time now about the notion of the right to the city. It's not a very well-articulated conversation. It's not spelled out, but it has a kind of, I think, excitement about it that we make ourselves and we realize our citizenship through the spaces that we build, the built patterns, the forms of use, That we allow to happen in our cities, the balance of public private and so on.
4: We can't escape No, we dare attempt to cool We're given chips We don't don't feel too rich We're firemen With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM.
5: This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
1: That's the Soul Jazz Orchestra with their recent album, Inner Fire, and another track uh, from this fantastic album, uh, One Life to Live. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And you can check uh, this podcast um, and any content uh, you may have m- missed or or uh, any content from past uh, programs out at thecityfm.org. Again, that's www.thecityfm.org or search the City Critical Urban Discussions um, so you can check the program out uh, live here Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. on CITR um, and uh, syndicated Fridays 10 to 11 a.m. on Fridays. Um, be sure to check the program out on Twitter um, if you're on Twitter. And that's with the handle the city underscore FM and also on Facebook by searching the city critical urban discussions. Again, uh, as I mentioned, you can find the program um, online and uh, some uh, great web uh, content up there as well. So thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we're going to go out with a track and uh, be back next week with more critical urban discussions. I'm Andy Longhurst. Have a fantastic week. Um, and thank you, as always, for tuning in. I'm a mean
4: machine. I like to rock steady, if you know what I mean. And fresh dreams. I'm a mean machine. Mean. I'm a mean machine. I like to rock steady, if you know what I mean In fresh dreams, I'm a mean machine, mean machine Oh my god, I'm lost and found Inside life's endless day Dreams, they burn down to the ground We made the fire, we scorched our way Mean, I'm a mean machine I like to rock steady, if you know what I mean. In fresh dreams, I'm a mean machine. Mean, I'm a mean machine. I like to rock steady, if you know what I mean. In fresh dreams, I'm a mean machine. Mean machine. Starway.